many of the things that they learned in the military situation helped them when they went back to Civvy Street to deal with medics and medical problems back in the hometowns where they come from. Things such as artificial blood and, and the means of uh, triaging, all very finely tuned practice at a military battle situation, but not necessarily the case back home. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me we have Ted Barris, Canadian military historian. Thanks for taking this time. David, a pleasure. Thank you. Ted, you've written some fascinating books over the years, and along the way, I've got to imagine that uh, it's hit you personally. I mean, you've, you've covered extensively soldiers and, and medics' experiences in the war. Have you been able to process some of the traumatic things? Well, I guess part of the job of a historian and a journalist and a broadcaster uh, in search of stories, true stories, is to face the realities that your research or your sources have faced. And you've got to build, to a certain extent, a bit of a shield to protect yourself against the tough stories. I've probably interviewed somewhere between six and 7,000 veterans over the past 45, 50 years in the creation of some 19 – this year my 20th book will be published – I can't say that it has not affected me emotionally uh, in terms of a sense of of trauma and uh, loss. Um, But perhaps the best way to describe my response to it is that having interviewed so many of those veterans, women and men over the years, very often, and and most of them from the Second World War, the Korean War and so on – I had become very close to them. They they treated me like an equal or in some cases like a son because my father, my own father was in the Second World War and so I was the, of the right age, born right after the war. So when came time for some of those veterans to get to the point in their lives that they passed on, I would get calls regularly and this happened as recently as uh, about a month ago. I would get calls from the family and they would say to me, Ted, dad died this past week. Mm. Um, We don't know what his military experience was. You're the only one who does. Would you do the uh, eulogy at the funeral or at the remembrance or the the memorial? And how can I not go? And as a result, I have to go and in a way say goodbye to that person as if she or he were my own mother or father repeatedly again and again. That's not easy. Mm. That's not easy to say goodbye. But I recognize it as a service to the family because for them, I'm revealing details of that man or woman's life they didn't know. So in a way, I'm paying back to the veteran and to the family of the veteran, and that's not easy, but it's a service in a way that's very appropriate, very, very um, deserving. Mm. Do you find the writing that you do to be therapeutic? Of course. Um, very often writing these kinds of books, uh, nonfiction histories, is described as being very lonely. Oh, yes, the writer's all there in his garret uh, looking at his uh, empty sheet of paper or in this more recent times a computer screen all alone. Nobody there but him and the empty screen or the empty page. That's For me, that's not true. Having done all those interviews, the moment I start to pull out the transcripts or the actual audio recordings or video recordings of those interviews. So there's nothing I enjoy more than that painstaking day after day process of entering that office, letting those voices begin to speak to me and start to write. Mm. 
you get a lot of inspiration to dive into a project like this from your own family lineage. Your father was a medic. Could you speak to his inspiration to you a little bit? Later in life, because dad and I were both professional writers and we did some writing together, in fact, co-authored a book called Days of Victory, uh, another one called Making Music, we shared a lot. And that's when some of the stories of his experience began to emerge, that he had been in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, I'd asked him when I was 14 if he had been awarded anything. And um, he gave me this ribbon with a small gong on it, a small medal on it. I never thought anything about it. Dad didn't explain it. I just tucked it away and forgot about it. When my dad was severely ill um, as an elderly man, having smoked a great deal, he had a series of strokes. Suddenly, I was given the opportunity to discover some of his military past. I actually went to the States after he died, got his records, ran into a man who would served with him, a man named Tony Malachi in, hmm. in New Jersey, who gave me great insights to my dad's experience in the Battle of the Bulge. And when I was with Tony, this man in New Jersey, Tony told me that my dad had been awarded something. And I suddenly remembered the medal that dad had given me. And it turned out to be the Bronze Star, which is about the fourth highest medal for courage under fire that the American military awards. I had no idea. I did not know this until Tony alerted to me to it. We found the records, but I'd had the medal all along and never, ever asked dad any more about it until after he was gone. So this is this incredible connection that I'd had with dad. And I didn't want to spend the entire book, Rush to Danger, just talking about my father. But I thought here was a wonderful way that I could begin to talk about my dad's experience as I discovered it as a sort of a central stem to the book with Mm -hmm. the stories of others like Francis Scrimger, but all the way going all the way back to the U.S. Civil War to talk about the evolution of military medicine right up to Afghanistan and Iraq in the 21st century context, um, giving stories about men and women who served uh, in those situations as military medical personnel. And you recall at the very end of the book, uh, you speak to your own personal experience recounting some of your father's footsteps in Germany. This is in 2017. And this was an area in which your father served as a medic in. And you write very cathartically about this. Could you just expand on on what that experience meant to you? At the time, I was teaching uh, as a journalism professor in Toronto uh, in 2017. and, And I had been at it for almost 20 years. And I had done the bulk of the work on the manuscript, essentially drawing together Uh, some material that I'd gathered from the St. Louis records of my dad's service, the stories that Tony Malachi gave me from New Jersey. I found the records of his battalion at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. And I'd stitched all this together. And suddenly I got a call from somebody telling me that there was an American tour leaving the United States to go to the Battle of the Bulge area in what was now Luxembourg and Germany, on a tour and I'd never been there. And I thought I must go on this, but I couldn't do that and keep my job at the college. So I resigned my professorship and I told the Dean I was leaving. He thought I was crazy. And I said, but I got to go. Cause I think I may discover more than I have on my dad. And I went on this trip. And so very strange thing happened. I, I had read about a place called Camp Holtz Woods, which is just across the border from what is now Luxembourg into Germany. And that that was a place where my dad had served. Um, We got very near that spot and the guy who was directing this tour told me that I wouldn't have very much time when we got to Camp Holtz Woods that I'd have maybe 20 minutes. 
And I was just, I was devastated because I really wanted to spend more time there. But as we were approaching that area, the young man who was our tour guide sort of was leading the discussion of what had happened as the Americans, in this case, my dad's being attached to an American infantry regiment. In any case, we were standing near Camp Holtz Woods and uh, this young tour director was taking questions and someone from the group I was with, there were 35 Americans. I was the one Canadian in the tour group and somebody in the group and I was just getting to know them. Somebody said, well, where were the civilians when all this war battle was going on? And he said, well, most of them had been evacuated from the area. And a voice behind me said, oh, that's not exactly true. And a guy stepped up. I turned and addressed him and I said, why did you say that? He said, well, I was born here after the war. And I said, well, what, what do you remember of that? He said, well, my mother used to say that our home, which is not too far from here, she returned from a day when the Americans had moved in and had occupied the house and had turned it into a first aid station. And the hair in the back of my neck went up. And I said, where exactly is this? He said, oh, it's about a mile from Camp Holtz Woods. And I realized that Al, this guy that I'd just met, had grown up in a home that was probably the first aid station my dad served in in 1945. And so even though I'd had only a few minutes to walk the mile from Borg, this little town where the first aid station was to Camp Holtz Woods, Al took me back later and we walked together. And I got a strong sense of what that mile was between the first aid station and the battlefront from which my dad and his colleagues um, in the medical battalion, had retrieved wounded and brought them back to Borg. And that was the place that I learned where my dad had served and won this bronze star. And walking that path, I turned my, my, my cell phone on as I walked that mile, just giving my head uh, a chance to respond to my heart and speak into the microphone in the, in the phone. And by the end of the walk, I was weeping. I was so overcome by the emotion of realizing I was walking in the steps my father had walked you know, 75 years before uh, to earn that bronze star. And it was very, very moving and inspired me to come back and rewrite the book with all that new information and, and make a better book of Rush to Danger than it was. Your father was someone who chronicled events from the past and, and you uh, conceded that when you were younger and you were asking him about his, his time overseas, uh, you didn't have the journalistic ambition that you do today. But do you think there was this sense that he was reserved and and didn't necessarily want to recall all of his experiences from being overseas and some of the badges of honor that he had accomplished? I think you're right. And you've hit on a very important point, uh, David, and that is that veterans from that period after, you know, half a century or three quarters of a century, if they're still alive at that point, they have be- developed a kind of um, a mantra, a means of deflecting what might be very hurtful thoughts and hurtful comments and, and, and dredging up of very horrible memories of what they experienced. My dad saw, even in that place at Camp Holtz Woods, on one day, his medical unit handled something like 119 men in 12 hours. We're not talking about, you know, scratches and broken feet. We're talking about limbs that had been torn off and and shrapnel wounds that had, you know, pierced skulls and left people in horrific conditions. In the middle of the the battle zone uh, of the Battle of the Bulge, dad had experienced this. And so I suspect because my dad was a writer, a journalist, a broadcaster, very, very outgoing, um, a lovely guy to get to know, I, he never really got angry. He never hit me. He never, I mean, we had arguments. But I sensed that it was that sense of humor and that sense of his uh, being a, 
a public speaker, uh, a journalist out there meeting the public, uh, writing and gathering information. That, in a way, was his defensive mechanism. Mm. And I think for every veteran, it's different. That was his. Uh, For others, it was alcohol. Uh, For others, it was, you know, taking the uniform, taking the memories, the journals, the diaries, the letters – sticking them in a closet, locking the door and never letting any of that out again and essentially turning away from it and forgetting that it ever happened. That's how some people dealt with it. Well, it's so good that you were able to uncover that. It's interesting you say coping mechanisms and I think of my family heritage. My grandfather's uncle relayed to our family that a fellow doctor, so another relative, uh, when he was serving in World War I in the medical corps, he told um, my grandfather's uncle that he wouldn't have been able to get through the experience had it not been to be able to go home at each night and to groom his horse. Is this something that you came across in, in all the interviews you conducted too? Oh, sure. Some uh, people on the battlefront, if they had them read books to distract them or, you know, wrote letters home or, you know, lied in the journal to say that nothing really was, you know, everything was just normal. Everything is fine as a, as a means of, of distracting themselves and perhaps their family from, you know, feeling any concern. But it's interesting that you should use the analogy of the reference to grooming the horse because there's a neat story that I discovered that I used in Rush to Danger. In 1944, after the Canadians had moved a good distance up the boot of Italy in Mm -hmm. the liberation of Italy in 43-44, I came across a story of a group known as the 8th Princess Louise Hussars. These were uh, tank operators and troops, uh, squadron. And they were moving through this area in September of 44 and in the middle of the holocaust of the battlefield when the sort of the the, the shelling and the and the combat had died down and they were just sort of assembling to kind of uh, gather themselves for the next move the hussars suddenly heard a whinnying out in the in the battlefield hmm. and they suddenly discovered this foal this very young probably weeks old foal nudging the mare that was its mother, and the mare was dead. It had been killed in the action. And suddenly these troops who had been battling for their lives and to push the Germans farther up the boot of Italy are faced with the prospect of what do we do to save this foal? And so they attended to it, uh, took care of it, dealt with some scratches and wounds that it had sustained during the, the, the battle and then let it loose again, expecting that it would find its way. Well, the horse, the foal wouldn't leave them. So ultimately, they wouldn't leave it. And they took it along with them all the way through Italy, back to the main continent when they were fighting in Belgium and hiding the horse (laughs) in all of their – they had a truck that was supposedly full of ammunition. Well, they hollowed out the middle of the truck in the the back area of the platform and they made that a mobile barn for this this young – a horse, and it was it was a foal. It was it was female, so they named her Princess Louise after their regiment. And they went all the way to the trouble of actually smuggling the horse home back through the states to get it back to New Brunswick, which was their home base. The My goodness. Louise literally brought the horse all the way home <laughs> and then it had a foal and it became a tradition to remember the original battle and the original uh, connection between the regiment and Princess Louise the first. All the way to the to the days when, uh, you know, the foals that followed carried on that tradition. So in some ways, 
as ridiculous as it sounds, these guys dropping everything to attend to this foal probably spared them much of the hurt that had gone on to the war in that point. And then later on, the foal became the mascot, became a reason to connect them all, a reason to think of life, not just death. But um, it obviously meant so much to them that it became right the heart of their existence for the rest of the war and beyond. Yeah. You know, from familiarity to just being thrown into the fire, that's the way that a lot of these medics felt. And Colonel John McRae, so sticking back in the Great War, an accomplished pathologist, he admitted that no medical school training could prepare him for the just the sheer battlefield that he would operate on. He would be working on patients within range of enemy machine guns. We know the story of John McRae because he's associated with the writing of that absolutely exquisite poem in Flanders Fields, which describes about uh, what it was like. We are the, the living, we are the dead, um, and, and the passing of the torch to those who survive and move on. Uh, that singular piece of uh, poetry has made him famous. But when I was doing the research for Rush to Danger, I found that he was part of another very important historic moment during the war, and that was that... When the war broke out in 1914, they knew very quickly, the allies, the Commonwealth nations, that there would very quickly be casualties. Hmm. And many more casualties then could be handled. How do we quickly ramp up the medical assistance that's required in such a horrific battle zone as was the Western Front? And somebody got the bright idea that if what if we took the medical teaching schools places such as the University of Toronto or Western University in in Ontario or McGill in Montreal and somehow tap into the skills that are available, albeit at a preliminary level, and elevate them to the battlefront. So they literally looked, for example, initially at McGill and they saw teachers, many of whom had military experience in the reserve, and students, these are medical students who are learning the skills of surgeons and other aspects of medical treatment and so on. And so they made the professors uh, who were teaching at McGill officers, medical officers, in what would become number three Canadian mobile hospital in Europe. And so the students became the medical orderlies and uh, nurses and sort of the people assisting the doctors in the skills that would be required. And they connected with several hospitals in Montreal to make contact with nurses, invited those who were willing to join this group, and about 1,500 people and all of their equipment, including beds and utensils and all this, the, the, the elements of, of a, a medical hospital that would be required, they literally picked them up, put them on a ship in Quebec City, transported them to England and then from England to France and set up number three Canadian hospital just in from the coast. So all these people who had been teaching and learning in McGill were plunked on a ship with the nurses off to the war front and they set up a hospital right behind the lines in France. The idea was genius and it was replicated with several other schools. And John McRae was part of that because he had taught many of the students uh, at McGill. He went overseas earlier in the war in 1914 before the, the rest came over and was serving with the artillery in France. And he was serving at Ypres, this location I mentioned earlier in Belgium. Mm-hmm. He was so close to the front, you could probably throw a baseball between where the Germans were and the Canadians were. He's down, hunkered down in a, in a bunker, which is a sort of a concrete um, cave. And that's where he's doing first aid to the men who are being wounded all around him. He said at one point, that 
with the bodies literally coming down off the parapet down into the area where his bunker was, he said, even the Montreal Ambulance Service couldn't deliver the wounded better than this did. It was literally they were dropping around him and he would bring them into the bunker and serve their needs, attend to them and get them farther back to places such as Number 3 Canadian Hospital where others of his colleagues of McGill University were serving just behind the front. So the, the, the suddenly something that had been very civilian, very isolated in the teaching and learning of medicine, suddenly plunked behind the lines became in many ways the perfect answer for dealing with the many thousands of wounded men in the Canadian lines who would come out. Hmm. And it's been replicated to this day. It has. I mean, it, that's where you draw for um, military needs. I, I, on that same trip that I mentioned when I was overseas with the Americans, there were several doctors who had been civilians in America and were invited to become, to gain a, an officer's status in the ranks of, of U.S. Army or Air Force and literally be transported to Afghanistan and Iraq to serve as military medics. Um, and so they transported their civilian skills as doctors and, and medics to the front in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then interestingly, many of the things that they learned in the military situation helped them when they went back to Civvy Street to deal with medics and medical problems back in the hometowns where they'd come from. Things such as artificial blood and and the means of uh, triaging, all very uh, finely tuned practice at a military battle situation, but not necessarily the case back home. And they brought those skills and those practices back to improve service to their uh, colleagues in their own communities. It expedited their schooling. It certainly did. I mean, you, you, if any doctor will tell you, any professional will tell you that in addition to using the skills you learn, you've always got your ears and eyes open to learn other things to improve what you do. Hmm. And here we are, 2022, we're in the middle of this war in Ukraine and we're seeing greater advances in medicine, but it's seeming like history is repeating itself. Uh, you told me off the air uh, before we came on here for our interview that uh, you saw in the news that hospital that had been uh, massacred by Russia in Mariupol. Uh, there was a medic that was killed and he would have been out there rushing to danger. These people coming back to your very first point, David, about why they do this. This was an image in, in video I saw on the news the other night of a, of a medic out there in the open at an intersection attending to people who had been injured in a previous uh, mortar attack or artillery shell landing, whatever it was. And somebody was on a cell phone, was video recording what was happening. And you could see him moving to the wounded people. And then suddenly there's this extraordinary explosion and the whole world shakes and is the vibration is felt on the on the cell phone and there's dust and smoke and chaos and screaming as people are responding and for a while it was thought that the medic was killed ultimately it was discovered that he'd survived but many of the people he was attempting to to assist the civilians had died in that action but there he was literally out there in the open nothing to protect him except maybe a a bit of a flak jacket attending people who were in greater need than he mm. wow Ted Barris, really appreciate you taking this time. David, my pleasure. Thank you for giving me that airtime and, and for letting me share my dad's story. Uh, so many of these people are gone, but um, it's really important 
even if it's not Remembrance Day, to recall what they did, how they did it, why it was important. And if you want to find out anything more about Ted, including information on any of the many books he's written, head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture of the Crossroads. As mask and vaccine mandates are dropped across many provinces in Canada, public health is signaling an end to the pandemic. But according to Marc-Andre Langlois, the executive director of Canada's Coronavirus Variants Rapid Response Network, that's a mouthful, there could be some steps still to take. We need uh, additional antiviral drugs so that uh, when you do get infected, you can start immediately taking drugs to reduce the severity of the disease, the length of uh, how long you're going to be safe. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today, and we invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.